Last week we were privileged to have uh, Pastor Dave um, share with us out of Mark chapter 10. I'm always humbled to follow in his footsteps when he preaches the week before me. Um, just so grateful for him, as many of you in here are uh, as well. Um, he just serves me so well, serves this church so well, and serves our Lord so well. So it's always a, a privilege to sit and listen to him teach. So um, I know many of you pray for Pastor Dave. Continue to do so. Continue to pray for me. We, we really need it and appreciate it. Um, I'm excited about where we're at this morning. Um, we're going into Mark chapter 11. We finished chapter 10 last week. Pastor Dave did. And um, it's a perfect message. I, I wasn't really sure in, in, in preparing where God was taking me, but it all made sense once I opened my mouth last night. Um, and what the Lord, uh, yeah, just kind of where He took the message and having communion. So I'm really excited. It's such an honor to that we get to do this, that we get to gather as believers in Christ under the banner of Jesus Christ. So, so grateful you're here. So thankful to serve the Lord with you guys. It's good to be with you. I'm going to open up with uh, something here before we read our text. And then we'll read our text. Mark 11, 1-11 is what we're covering this morning. And then we'll pray. So let me open up with this first. The following is a translation of a letter sent by Publius Lentulus to the Roman Senate during the Roman Empire period. Publius Lentulus was a Roman consul during the reign of Augustus. Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. and is said to have been governor of Judea before Pontius Pilate. And this is what Publius Lentulus wrote to the Roman Senate. He says, There appeared in these days a man of great virtue named Jesus Christ, who was yet among us, of the Gentiles accepted for a prophet of truth, but his disciples call him the Son of God. He raiseth the dead and cureth all manner of disease, a man of stature, somewhat tall and comely, meaning handsome, with a very reverend countenance, such as the beholder must both fear and love. His hair the color of a chestnut, full ripe, plain to the ears, whence downward from there it is more orient, curling and waving about his shoulders. In the midst of his forehead is a stream or partition of his hair, after the manner of the Nazarites, forehead, plain and very delicate, his face without spot or wrinkle, beautiful with a lovely red, his nose and mouth so forked as nothing can be represented, his beard thick in color like his hair, not overlong, his look innocent and mature, his eyes gray, quick and clear. In reproving, he is terrible. In admonishing, he's courteous and fair-spoken. Pleasant in conversation, mixed with gravity. It cannot be remembered that any have seen him laugh, but many have seen him weep. In proportion of body, most excellent. His hands and arms, delectable to behold. In speaking, very temperate, modest and wise. A man of singular beauty surpassing the children of men. I can't wait to meet him. 
I can't wait to meet him. Let's read our text this morning. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Mark 11, starting in verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go, go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter that village, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he went uh, He will send it back here when you say that. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Let's pray. God, what a joy, what a privilege to gather today and talk about your son, Jesus Christ, who means so much to us and arguably means more to us every day that passes as we get a clear understanding of who He is and what He means to us. Lord, have Your way with us this morning. Give us the strength to endure how You're molding and shaping us into the image of Your Son. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Again, thank you for being here. Let me give you a little background of what's going on in our text. This is really good stuff. As our text that we just read, as it indicates, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. Having just left Jericho, which we just read about last week in Mark chapter 10 with Pastor Dave. And they arrive at Bethany or Bethphage near the Mount of Olives, directly east of Jerusalem. Its summit and western slopes provide for a marvelous view of the city of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was about 12 miles from Jericho, where they just came from and yet still two miles from Jerusalem. As we are constantly reminded of the Lord's perfect timing, we will see it here again as Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem during Passover. Jerusalem at Passover season was the delight of Jews and the despair of Romans. Thousands of devout Jews from all over the world arrived in the holy city. Their hearts filled with excitement and nationalistic fervor The population of Jerusalem more than tripled during the Passover feast, making it necessary for Roman military units to be on high alert. They lived with the possibility that some enthusiastic Jewish zealot might try to kill a Roman official or incite a riot. And there was always potential for disputes among the various Jewish religious groups. The first of the three annual Jewish festivals was indeed the Passover. It commemorated the tenth and final plague on Egypt, where you can read in Exodus chapter 1 all the way to Exodus chapter 12. And that tenth plague, if you recall, was when the firstborn, whether it was human or animal, the firstborn of all the Egyptians was going to die, but the Israelites were going to be spared because of the blood that was shed and smeared on the doorposts 
Yahweh punishes Egypt by killing all the firstborn, but passes over the firstborn of Israel, resulting in the Israelites' deliverance from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Passover took place on the 14th day at evening on the first month of the Jewish calendar, Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, which is our March or April. The animal to be slain was selected on the 10th of that month and then slaughtered on the 14th of that month and then eaten. On the night of this 10th plague, the Israelites were instructed to stay in their homes after slaughtering a lamb and placing its blood on the lintel or the support beam and then the doorposts of their houses. And the blood was to be a sign that distinguished the Israelites and separated them from the intended victims of the plague. The Passover was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because only unleavened bread was eaten during the seven days that immediately followed the Passover. Unleavened bread re- uh, reflected the fact that the people had no time to put leaven in their bread before their hasty departure from Egypt. The Israelites followed Moses' instructions And at midnight that night, Yahweh indeed struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and his brother Aaron in the middle of the night, and he ordered them to take all the Israelites and depart Egypt, as the Lord had promised. The Israelites left quickly, of course, taking their bread dough before it was leavened. The Israelites were instructed to observe the Passover on the 14th, of the first month of their calendar year, every year, to commemorate that night when God delivered them from Egypt. During New Testament times, large crowds gathered in Jerusalem to observe observe this annual celebration. Jesus was crucified during the Passover event. He and His disciples ate a Passover meal together on the eve of His death. And during this meal, Jesus said, and many of us know this, where he said, this is my body and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The New Testament identifies Christ with the Passover sacrifice. And Scripture says, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And that's where we get the term, the sacrificial lamb, whose blood was shed for us so that he would pass over and not wipe us out as he did the firstborn of the Egyptians. Turn to Exodus chapter 12 for that story. Exodus chapter 12. Turn there, verses 1 through 13. I want to just read this before we move on. Exodus 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say this, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now if the household's too small for a lamb, then partner up with your neighbor and take the lamb according to however many that would be. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the crossbeam, the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat, eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Get ready. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says this. It will be on your screen. It says, Clean out the eleven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Can I get an amen? So what do we take away from some of this so far? No blood. Here's one takeaway. No blood. No Passover. No blood. No Passover. Unless the blood of Jesus covers us, we too shall die. And that's what it means to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Savior, That His blood would cover us. so That that judgment will pass over us. Unless that happens, we shall remain in bondage. A slave to sin, which is what Egypt represents. That if His blood doesn't cover us, we will remain in slavery to our sin. But I want us to know, church, that Jesus is not just for our salvation. He's also for our sanctification. Just like the last song that the worship team did. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. There's never a moment where we don't need the blood of Christ over our lives. We don't just say, thank you, Lord, for the blood that you shed and move on with our lives. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for Christ. He continued to march on with what he was called to. And that's what he calls us to, to be Christ-like. And so we need his blood at all times. No blood, no Passover. No blood, we live in bondage to sin. Oh, Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. We've kind of beat this drum, and I hope you're getting it. And if not, that's okay. I'll beat it one more time. Jerusalem. Our text shows that they're on their way to Jerusalem. Look back, and what do we, if you remember, if you don't, that's okay. What, what do we remember that was mentioned in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10 that Jesus talks to his disciples about? Huh? Yeah, the cross is coming. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Let's go there. Look at Mark 8.31 and then 9.31 and then 10.33. Let's start with Mark 8.31. It's important for us to understand this. In Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, He Himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Let's go to Jerusalem. And then you see to Mark chapter 9, also in verse 31, He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. Let's go to Jerusalem. And then we see it in Mark chapter 10, verses 33. Or verse 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn Him to death and hand Him over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and spit on and scourged, and they're going to kill Him, and three days later He will rise again. Let's go to Jerusalem. 
according to those three texts, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, Jesus is very aware of what awaits him at Jerusalem. Yeah? As mentioned earlier, from the Mount of Olives, it's approximately 2,600 feet above Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples had a breathtaking view of the city. And it would have looked something like this. I think we have a picture, right? You can see the temple. So it's about two miles from the Mount of Olives. I had to throw a picture in because Pastor Dave did that last week. And I didn't know we can do that in church. So I was so excited to know that I can bring, you know, tell stories through pictures. Much easier. Imagine pulling up, if you will, into the Mount of Olives and seeing what awaits you. Seeing this picture. Jerusalem, just two miles away. Now keep in mind, church, that Mark has 16 chapters. We went through chapters 1 through 10. That covered about a three-year period of time. The last six chapters will cover one week. The Passover week. Mark has a lot to say about how important that is. I can only wonder what must have been going on for Jesus upon seeing that, that visual, that picture. Seeing both the beauty and the burden of the holy city. You follow what I'm saying? To finally get there to the Mount of Olives and to be able to see two miles away both the beauty and the burden of the same place. You get what I'm saying? His thoughts, what were they? What about his emotions? I wondered if he wondered if he possessed the strength and the willingness to execute the burden that God the Father had in store for him in that place of beauty. Here, the beauty of Jerusalem, the capital city of biblical Israel, and the central location of Israel's understanding of their life under their God. The beauty of Jerusalem. Look at this verse that shows us both the beauty and the burden of Jerusalem. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. That's the burden. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins, the beauty, would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in that place. The beauty and the burden of Jerusalem. Here, the burden of Jerusalem, the place where our Lord and Savior humbly died by choosing to experience a brutal crucifixion for the sins that you and I committed. Here, the beauty of Jerusalem where Jesus would fulfill and accomplish all the Lord had called Him to do. And in so doing, enter into the ultimate fate of His life which is one of glorification and enthronement, not suffering. A life of resurrection and ascension and a return in glory. Can I get an amen? I can't help but wonder how many of us are perhaps experiencing this same sort of experience or challenge, if you will. We have those Jerusalem moments, if you will where we can clearly see that the Lord is leading us and showing us the beauty and the burden of what He wants from us. You get what I'm saying? I think for some of us, we've wrestled with that concept for decades. Where God has something beautiful for us, but we see the burden of it as well. What do we do? Like Jesus, 
who had a fixated view on Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, we too, many of us I believe, have a clear picture of the beauty that awaits our obedience, our calling, our discipleship. But we also understand, hopefully, and will accept the burden that that will bring. Are we, like Jesus, able to respond as He does in our text? Let's look. How did He respond? Mark 11. They approach uh, Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. And what does He do? He has this view from the Mount of Olives. He sees Jerusalem and He knows there's both burden and blessing there. How does He respond? This is how He responds. He sends two of His disciples. And He says, go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter, you're going to find a colt tied there in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If they question you, tell them it's fine. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And of course, the bystanders said, what are you doing? They said, everything's fine. And they gave permission. Verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it. And what did He do? He sat on it. He said, let's go. Let's do this thing. He knew what was awaiting Him. He talked about it in Mark 8. He talked about it in Mark 9. He talked about it in Mark 10. And now He's willing to execute in Mark 11. It's powerful. And He saddles up, if you will. Zechariah 9.9 is where we get some of our texts from. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus doesn't send for the colt and sit on the colt merely to fulfill prophecy. He does it to fulfill His mission and to fulfill His calling. To become all that the Lord had called Him to be. To model for you and I that the Lord has great things for all of us. Do you believe that? I believe that God has great things for all of us. And so Jesus models that. That God has great things for all of us who do what? Who endure the burden so that we can experience the beauty. Endure the burden so we can experience the beauty. What is that for you? We don't got enough time to get into all the things that are jacked up in my life, so I'll just pick on your lives. What is that for you? Perhaps it's the beauty of a great marriage, but you need to engage the burden of what it is going to, what it's going to take to make your marriage work. Perhaps it's the beauty of a great job or a career, but you need to engage the burden of putting in your time and living in the trenches for a while, learning and mastering how to work well with others. Perhaps it's the beauty of being free from alcohol, drugs, or pornography, but you need to engage the burden of what it will take to live a healthy lifestyle in regards to those things that steal from us and rob from us and kill us and destroy us. Perhaps it's the beauty of being near to our Lord and getting a deeper sense of His love and His presence and His power. But you need to engage the burden of unceasingly spending time in prayer, unceasingly spending time in His Word, and unceasingly spending time with other believers because we recognize that Scripture says iron sharpens iron. 
Perhaps it's the beauty of being free from worry and stress, but you need to engage the burden of confessing to God that you're having a hard time trusting Him. And that you simply need to get to know Him better so that you realize He's trustworthy. Over Mark chapter 11, it says a triumphal entry. Oh, we love that. But listen, I'll say it twice. Perhaps some of us will never experience triumphal entries simply because we're not willing to engage in tragic endings. Right? Perhaps we will never experience triumphal entries because we're not willing to engage in tragic endings. Jesus was willing to do that. And so we praise His name because He's great. But He sets the tone for us that we will look at our Jerusalem moments, which happen time after time after time. But I think sometimes we just have these big moments where God says, I have beauty for you, but I want you to embrace the burden as my son did. John twelve twenty four, great verse for this thought. Truly, truly, which means please take this serious. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The willingness to die, the burden, because beauty is on the other side. It's powerful. Because if we don't die, as this verse says, we remain alone. And I think that happens to a lot of people in the church. They feel alone. Because they're not willing to die, if you will, and be fruitful and engage the burden so that they can experience the beauty of what's on the other side. Amen? Great challenge for us. May we today begin to trust the beauty that God has in store for each and every one of us. God, you have something beautiful for me. Help me to endure the burden that you're going to put me through because whatever's on the other side has to be amazing. It's from our God. Some other thoughts. The Lord was about to do something in our text that He had never done before. Something that He repeatedly cautioned others not to do for Him. He's going to permit His followers to give a public demonstration in His honor. We've never seen this before. He didn't want that at all up until this moment. Interesting, yeah? In that day, a donkey was an animal fit for a king. A lot of us make, oh, he had to ride in on a donkey. No, it's the opposite. Check out 1 Kings one thirty-three. David says this, David the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, my servants, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Jesus is not in a mule. He's making a declaration. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords and our chosen Messiah. Also, when welcoming a king, it was customary for people to lay out their garments on the road. Check out 2 Kings 9.13 when they were um, honoring Jehu. They hurried. Each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. Jesus not only fulfilled prophecy, he also declared himself to be Israel's king and Israel's Messiah. And this set in motion the official plot that led to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Jesus was drawing a line in the sand. I love it. The Lamb of God must die during Passover. What about this business with uh, this cry of Hosanna? 
Well, we get that out of Psalm 118, actually, but not in the word Hosanna. Check out Psalm 118. Hosanna was taken from this psalm. Psalm 118, and in in, I think it's verse 15, actually, but we'll... There it is. Psalm 118, I'm sorry, 22 through 29. Looking at my notes wrong. I apologize. Starting at verse 22. The stone, right? The stone, Jesus, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And this is where Hosanna comes from. These words, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. That is the word that we get in the New Testament, Hosanna. O Lord, do save, we pray. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna, as I mentioned, is save. Lord, save, we beseech thee. Or save, we pray. Hosanna in the highest, as we see in our text, Mark chapter 11, Hosanna in the highest is simply save now you or thou who art in the highest. Since its usage or its first introduction in Psalm 118, Hosanna became an expression of joy, an expression of praise for deliverance. Deliverance for those things that have already been granted and deliverance for those things anticipated. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Hosanna. Save. Continually save. We need Him at all times. I suppose we can safely say that at this point, even Jesus' disciples were still discovering who He was. Right? They're still figuring this out. And the crowds are shouting Hosanna. They were probably even less inclined to understand who Jesus was. Interesting. It would only become clear later after the cross and after the resurrection what his Messiahship really meant. And I think that's a beautiful picture too because I think that's true of us on some level. We are all here as the body of Christ and many of us still with different understandings of of who Jesus is. We're learning more about him. I have a better understanding of who Jesus is now than I did 10 days ago, 10 months ago, and clearly 10 years ago. But I can say Hosanna nonetheless. I can praise Him nonetheless that we can come in unity and praise Him nonetheless as we continue to learn about Him. I think it's powerful. I think it's encouraging. I think it's a great depiction of the church. And sometimes we're a little skewed in our thinking about, you know, things about our Lord, but He receives our praise. And He works that out. And He works that out. And He works that out. I'm so thankful. And that's what makes doing church together fun. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, yes, there's one of those, says this. I think it's really cool. It says, those from whose lips Hosanna rose that day seem to have looked on Jesus as God's anointed one from the house of David, of whom the prophets had spoken and through whom they hoped that all their messianic expectations would be fulfilled. So far, so good. However misguided their particular expectations may have been, their actions underscore the theme of the Gospels that Jesus is indeed the promised Son of David through whom the redemption announced by God's prophets has come. In Him, the age-old cry, Lord save us or Hosanna, has become the glad doxology that we now know as Hosanna, which equals praise God and His Messiah, we are saved. 
What about this triumphal entry as our, our heading talks about, the triumphal entry? Really? Yes? No? Maybe? Let's, let's unpack that. No Roman would have used that term for Jesus' entry. They, the Romans, were experts on how to party and how to have parades. An official Roman triumph for a Roman general or leader was indeed something to behold. In the parade, they would exhibit his trophies of war and the illustrious prisoners that they had captured would be paraded. He would ride in a golden chariot and priests would burn incense in his honor and the people would shout his name and praise him. The procession would end at the arena where people were entertained by people killing one another, gladiators, if you will. That was a Roman triumph. And they weren't crucified within a week either. Our Lord's triumphal entry was nothing like that, but it was a triumph just the same. He was God's anointed King and Savior. But His conquest, as we know, would be spiritual, not military. Check this out, church. Do you know how many people a Roman general had to kill that would merit a parade or a triumph? Does anybody know? 5,000. It's like, man, I'm at 4,998. Like, I don't get a parade. i got to go kill two more people, right? 5,000 to merit a triumph in Rome. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This is just so powerful. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message, this is the beginning of the church, right? So the Lord has died, He's been resurrected, and He's ascended. And He pours out His Holy Spirit. Many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of men that believed came to 5,000. That's a king. Roman kings have to kill 5,000 people. Our Lord saves 5,000 people. That's the God that we serve. That's why we threw him a parade. That's why he rode in on a donkey and coats and we scream Hosanna. He's worthy of that. He saw Jerusalem and he embraced the burden and the blessing that awaited in that place for him. 5,000. I'm going to close with this and then our worship team is going to come up when I'm done with this. Um, And then we're going to partake in communion. I want you to listen to this. I think it's a really cool story. And filter the story, obviously, thinking of Christ and thinking of yourself for us to be Christ-like, yeah? In the fall of 1775, the manager of Baltimore's largest hotel refused lodging to a man dressed like a farmer because he thought this fellow's lowly appearance would discredit his hotel. So the man left and took a room somewhere else. Later, the hotel owner discovered that he had turned away none other than the vice president of the United States, one named Thomas Jefferson. Immediately, he sent a note to the famed patriot asking him to return and be his guest. And Jefferson replied by instructing his messenger 
as follows. Tell him I have already engaged a room. I value his good intentions highly. But if he has no place for a dirty American farmer, he has none for the President of the United States. Let me pray. God, I don't know how I can thank you enough for sending your Son who beheld from the Mount of Olives the city of Jerusalem that was going to bring both burden and beauty and He executed flawlessly. I'm trying to understand that, Lord. I think all of us here are. And I pray that as we partake in communion that we would have a deeper glimpse of what that looks like. What Your Son has done for us. We jumped on that colt and rode to His fate knowing that beauty was on the other side of that burden. And God, I pray that You would give us strength to do the same. When You call us in our Jerusalem moments as well, help us, Lord. How can we possibly do that without You? Lord, we love You. Thank You for this privilege to gather in Your name and to do communion to remember Your Son. In Jesus' name.